Good morning, Iris. Good morning, how are you? I'm doing good. Why don't we start by you just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got interested in your subject. Sure. So uh, my name is Iris Jamal Dunkel and I'm from Northern California. I live in Sonoma County um, and I grew up here. And um, part of growing up here is um, we have a Jack London State Historic Park. And so um, when I was in the sixth grade, um, I went on this field trip to the park and I had already, already known that I was a writer growing up, you know, but I'd never actually met a writer. You know, it's pretty rural here and uh, you don't really come across writers in your daily life. And so when I went to Jack London State Park, um, it was the first time I encountered, you know, someone who lived their life as a writer. And um, I just kind of fell in love with the idea of traveling the world and being a writer. And so Jack Lennon was kind of like the first writer that I fell in love with. And so I read everything by him. Um, and then uh, when I went to graduate school and studied literature and got my PhD, I was going to study him, but um, the professors were like, oh, it's not a good idea. You know, he's not really a great topic. And so when oh, that's I- funny. What's that? I know. That's kind of funny. I think he's a great topic. I know, right? Um, but when uh, we when I came back to Sonoma County after um, you know getting my education, um, I started volunteering at the park, and that's when I started doing um, book talks, like uh, you know, uh, on Jack Lennon's books um, with with uh, all the docents that work at the park and all these people from around the area. Um, and uh, we started reading Charmian's books. So Charmian, um, Jack's second wife, wrote uh, all of these great, um, she wrote The Log of the Snark about their travels around Southeast, um, the, um, I'm sorry, around the South Seas. And um, she also wrote the autobiography, a, a biography about Jack London called The Book of Jack London. And the first volume of it is really, controversial because it has a lot of um, propaganda in it basically um, but the, the second the second um, the second one second volume includes this amazing account of who he really was and I kind of encountered in her this writer that was so different from the person who I had encountered you know in all the other biographies about Jack Lennon which I had of course read and I yes. was like wow that's there's a big gap there you know, there's a story here. And so that's really when the project began. Well, that's interesting because I think that happens a lot. That is, you read a biography of a major figure and uh, then there are these other figures who often the biographers don't do justice to. In part, it's difficult when you're writing a biography because to get in all those other figures as well as your main figure, that's that that takes up a lot of pages and can throw off the focus of the book. And yet at the same time, uh, these other figures do come up. Uh, it's certainly been my experience uh, reading Hemingway biographies and coming across Martha Gellhorn and realizing no right. one's really doing her justice. So Charmian was uh, this writer, this in a sense, this adventurer, uh, I remember from reading your biography of her that Jack, that they called each other mate, uh -huh. <laughs> which is interesting, I think. Um, say a little bit about how he treated her, what her role was in his life. 
Well, definitely. Well, I think it's first to establish that before she met him, right? She was yep. a really independent woman. Like she had, she was college educated. She traveled the world. Um, she was a working woman. She had a secretary reporting to her. So, and she was financially independent. And so um, that was, that's when she met him. And, um, but she fell in love with Jack Lennon um, and they ended up having an affair and getting married. Um, and their relationship, uh, even though she was an established writer, uh, she kind of didn't pursue that part of herself while they were together because Jack had this big personality, you know, very, um, I don't know, the kind of person that walks into the room and everybody notices, right? Um, yeah. He kind of just had this like, uh, you know, I, and I think Charmian was no, you know, wilting flower herself, but I think Jack kind of dominated um, their relationship in a way that he needed a lot of attention. And she handled all of his like correspondence. She handled, she actually was his editor. You know, she, she copied, not only copied down his manuscripts, but um, I mean, typed them up. She also, you know, contributed to the editing process and eventually, you know, started writing parts of his books. And so, it was a lot of work and then coordinating his schedule. And, and so for a lot of their relationship, she did not have the space to be a writer until um, eventually she had this realization where she was like, that's it. I've got to, you know, I, I want to be a writer. Right. Yeah. He, um, uh, you know, he had this worldwide reputation. I don't know how many people listening to our podcast realize that, you know, before Ernest Hemingway, he's thought of as sort of the, you know, the writer adventurer. Uh, but really the, the writer who establishes that kind of worldwide celebrity and travel and adventuring is Jack London. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really the the model. He's the he's the mark. He does, and like Hemingway, he does journalism. He does novels. You know, he does a number of different, really interesting kinds of work. He's he's known mainly for his adventure tales, but there's there's a lot more to Jack London. That's why I'm just surprised that you know you were told don't don't treat him as a subject. You know, graduate school can be very narrowing. Oh yeah, uh, and, you know, <laughs> I'm probably not telling you anything. But, I certainly learned that after graduate school, not not only about the range of subjects available to to read, but also what kind of writer you can be. Yeah, um, graduate yeah. school in a sense uh, beats it out of you if Definitely. you don't have a very strong, you know, personality. Well, I think uh, you know, I think there's two different, you know, there's two types of graduate schools that I attended and two different experiences I had because I uh -huh. I got an MFA in poetry. Um, at, at NYU, which, you know, definitely uh, quieted my poet for a little bit, just because it's just so competitive and so intense in New York. And then when I got my PhD, you know, what I what I got out of it was, um, A, I learned about, you know, academia and the, the code of conduct, basically. Um, but also I learned, um, what I did learn, though, was how I could have an independent project and pursue it myself. And so, Sure. It kind of gave me it gave me the authority to write books, you know, like I, I definitely was like, oh, wow, I can conceive of a project, you know, create a proposal and and build a book. But otherwise, it, there was a lot of um, it was it was especially especially the idea that um, female I always want to pursue these, you know, female um, figures that have been forgotten in some way. So I ended up writing on Amy Lowell, which, you know, you've written on. 
Yes, which I, I do want to talk about. But um, so my dissertation's on Amy Lowell, and um, ah. yeah, um, and I read your biography um, as part of that. But um, I, I was always, you know, I was always discouraged from pursuing these types of of write, you know, these types of people. So female yeah. writers that have been forgotten, and I was like, oh wait a second, that's what I'm going to do with my life. That's for sure. And um, the bias, I mean, I'm going back some now, but for instance, when uh, Lionel Trilling was alive, I was doing some research and I was looking in uh, the Penn archives and there was a talk that Trilling gave and he made these very disparaging comments about, you know, Virginia Woolf. You know, this is a man who would write, who would think it proper to write a book about E.M. Forster, and, and this is no knock against Forster, but who thought that somehow Virginia Woolf was unworthy. Uh, I just was, you know, astonished. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some lingering remnants of, of that sort of attitude uh, among at least some academics. But I agree with you about graduate school. It can, it can teach you a kind of discipline uh, that, that can, can really work to your benefit as well. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I have to bring this subject up because uh, of my own interest just in the history of biography and how biographies get written. Biographies have a certain provenance. They come from somewhere. Uh, and uh, in your case, others have written about Charmian uh, and certainly about Jack London. Uh, and as I said in my review of your book, which people can read in the, the New Criterion, uh, the book begins with this chapter about Irving Stone, <laughs> who I call I call the villain. Of my <laughs> I love that. And uh, and I think it's it just um, sends your book off in a, a great way because you got something to work against there. Mm. So I wonder if you could say a little bit, a little bit about Irving Stone. <laughs> well, that was probably the most difficult chapter to write in my life because uh, when I discovered what Irving Stone did through, you know, that's where I began my research actually. And um, when I discovered what he did to her um, by misaligning her and um, really creating this, persona of her that was an airhead and um, really hindered her husband's career more than helped it, I was very angry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, I'll bet. And you can't actually write something when you have all those feelings. So that's why I ended up writing a whole book of poetry about Charmian as I was going through the, um, you know, I was, I was working through the archives because it was a way to process all of my emotions. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you should mention that that book has been published now. Yes, it just came out. Um, it's called Westfire Archive. Um, it's out from um, uh, uh, the publishing center at University of um, uh, Colorado State University, um, and it is. Uh, it's the first part of it is a study of of biography and a study of how we tell the story of a life, um, but looking kind of under the hood through the processing of archives um, because there was so much of Charmian's life that was not um, not even acknowledged. Like even her death certificate was incorrect. Um, mm. And so it was uh, because she had dementia at the end of her life and um, a lot of other factors played into that. But so the whole study of understanding that, but, um, and so the, the it's, it was kind of fun to like deconstruct biography and write a biography at the same time. Um, 
I'm going to have to get that book and then we'll have to do another podcast. Oh, I would love that. Yeah, because you know so much about biography. It would be, it's more, in it, and it really focuses on the idea of the West too, the, you know, the, ah. the, um, the propaganda of the Western idea, so, uh, which I'm really fascinated with. Um, but Irving Stone was uh, a young writer who came to visit Charmian. And um, when, I, when I realized what happened, I, I realized I couldn't write the biography without beginning where she had been erased. You know what I mean? Right. And so right, it, the structure of the book really came early um, because I knew that if I started from the beginning of her life or really with her parents, because I felt that was important to establish her, you know, her Western heritage and like her story is kind of like the history of the West, you know? Um, yes. And so in order to kind of get people into that mode of what happened to her and why her story was important, I had to say what happened first. And so what, what was his notion about Jack London that, that made his wife, you know, so unworthy? Um, so Irving Stone, um, who, was, who had just done um, a biography on um, Van Gogh um, and really painted a very ugly picture of him, much to his family's um, uh, unhappiness. Um, he came to, to Charmian to visit her and um, wanted, told her, I really want to write a biography of Jack Lennon. And she was at that time, she'd been in an accident. It was, she was in her 60s and kind of losing, losing her, um, she was really athletic and um, really outgoing person. And that had been slowly taken away from her. And so when Irving Stone, he was in his 30s and he came in to you know visit her at the House of Happy Walls where she lived and just whined and dined her, like wanted to take her dancing, made her feel like a real intellectual again, um, which is how Jack London made her feel. They had this like thriving intellectual relationship. And so he came to her house, took her dancing and got her to sign away her rights to not only write mm -hmm. a biography about her, her husband, Jack London, but also about herself, which she was, she was a super private person. So the fact that he did that was really, he really was conniving to pull that off. And so, um, and they were also in financial, um, in financial, financial stress at that time. So that was another layer to it. Um, and so um, when, uh, when he finally did begin writing the biography, like once he got her to sign, he backed off, stopped whining and dining her, like went down to the Huntington archives, which had not, it's where Charmian had donated all of her, um, most of her papers, um, she hadn't donated, she'd sold them. And um, no one had gone through them yet. Like no one had set up the Jack London um, collection, which now exists. And um, and mm. so he just went through it and like organized it his own way, wrote on documents. Like, can you imagine going into an archive and walk and writing on documents? Like, no, and me was like, oh my God. Um, but then, um, then he just started he found all this information and started creating his own story that um, that created the Jack London that he wanted to create. And that was kind of what he did. He wrote these um, fictional biographies um, that were sensational, you know? And so he wanted to end with Jack London committing suicide. He wanted to kind of say that Charmian had something to do with that, that um, they had this loveless marriage that he slept around. Um, which he kind of did, but um, but just really making her out to be 
this non-intellectual person who really had no literary, um, you know, skills and really um, was just a social butterfly that really was in Jack's way. And um, it was like the worst, it was so devastating for her. She was so mad that he wrote this and it became a bestseller and it's still in print today. Um, I'm not gonna say the name. Yeah, it's a, yeah. <laughs> It's an extraordinary story. I mean, he, he belongs in some novel about a bad biography. He does, right? And I read it, you know, as a kid. <laughs> that was my first biography on Jack London. Um, ah, yes, it was at yeah. the park. Like, it was, like, what everyone would buy. Um, and so sure. it's it's really disturbing. Like, that's where I began. And then I got to, you know, write, write back to it. But because of that story, you know, Charmian was like, I can't, you know, this is ridiculous. And she like locked down the archives and then burned a lot of her early diaries, which I'm so, just pains me. Uh, beautiful yeah. documents about what it was like to live in the 1890s in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, and, and to be a working woman in that time period, which is so valuable. Um, and there's not a lot of those documents because of the 1906 earthquake. You know, like we lot, lost a lot of records in the Bay Area because of that catastrophe. And so it was a real loss. But because of that, like the true story of her kind of, um, it's been picked at, you know, by many scholars. Um, I'm really grateful to, you know, Clary Stas has written some amazing studies on Charmian um, and Jack's, yeah. um, the other women in Jack London's life. And also um, Earl Labor um, wrote this amazing biography about, about Jack London that he included for the first time, he included Charmian's diaries. And so that was a big opening up of her voice being part of it, but still, the story was told centered around Jack London. And so I was the first one that was like, throw Jack away and just let's just focus on Charmian and tell the story from her perspective, like from her documents. And that changed the story quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's often the case when a, a, a new biography appears that sometimes it's, I know this, this is how I felt about my Amy Lowell biography. I could almost have titled it Justice Day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were all these other biographies. Uh, and though they would mention certain key events and figures in Lowell's life, like the actress Ada Russell, yeah. who she lived with for, for a decade, uh, they would mention this. Biographers had a hard time because, uh, as with in Charmian's case, papers were destroyed. Yeah. So the letters between Ada Russell and Amy Lowell you know, were, were, were destroyed, were burned. Uh, by Ada yeah. Russell. Uh, and yet what I began to do is to think about, well, she's still there. Letters or no, you know, somebody, some biographers would give up and say, well, there are no letters. I can't do it. And I thought, well, let's look at where Ada uh, Russell was uh, in relation to Amy Lowell. That is when Amy Lowell took a trip, was Ada there? You know, and there were some really significant events in Amy Lowell's life where Ada Russell was not only along, but she was at the table yeah. with writers like Ezra Pound. And when you go back and read other Amy Lowell biographies, Ada Russell is I know, it's not a And yet the way, you know, the way Amy Lowell reacts to those male writers has a lot to do with, with the fact that she has this ally in mm -hmm. the room. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that, yeah, I, I think the most upsetting thing that I've ever seen is when I visited um, Amy Lowell's well, former estate, right? That has been, um, you know, I, I was yes. at the AWP in Boston and took a taxi out there and to see the Sky Palace just kind of chopped off of the top of that building, which was like, you know, her writing world, you know, up there and the gardens just completely that's erased. Crazy. And I was like, wow, that's just, 
physically hey, a yeah, picture. I know. I, yeah, I gave a talk at Harvard and I was talking to the archivist about they have a Amy Lowell collection in the Houghton Library. Which is ironic considering uh, she couldn't get into that that archive. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, she had this huge library and I said, what happened to it? They sold off, you know, bits and pieces of it. Some of it still exists, but, you know, again, there, there was no uh, recognition yeah. of, of her. Uh, I'm curious, when you were writing your book, um, whether you had any, any models, any other biographies that you, you were particularly, uh, you particularly admired or were sort of in the back of your mind when you were writing your own, or is it really just sort of sui generis? Uh, and there, there is no model for you. Well, that's a really good question. I, I do love reading biography, um, and I, there's, there, I of course used um, a lot of the Jack London models of um, biography, but this approach, no, I, I didn't have a, um, I didn't have a model of, you know, I'm sure there's many models of this, but I didn't have a model of starting kind of in this crisis moment and working, you know, back to it. Um, you know, going back to the beginning, working right. up to it, sorry. Um, but I did, I really have been fascinated lately with biographies like Love Unknown about Elizabeth Bishop. Um, oh, yeah. Just that idea of not being afraid to, which I mean, it's a little different, but going back and looking at a figure like Elizabeth Bishop, who um, everyone created this set story of poor Elizabeth. She was lonely. She was a drinker. You know, like that was that was the story that told instead yeah. of like, wow, what an incredible writer. Let's focus on how she became an incredible writer. And I think that's, that's part of, um, that's part of the idea that I had um, is the, let's focus on her as a person and not the circumstance, you know, not like all the people around her that made her who she was. Let's focus on her and um, why she was the way she was um, and kind of like center the narrative construction around her. And so, I mean, I was, I definitely love that. And I have to say like all of these new biographies that are coming out, like um, you just did an episode recently on the Sylvia Plath biography, um, the Red, Red yeah. Comet. That's just, I love how there's so much detail in there and that I'm like, wow, like it's almost too much. And that's, it's, it's mm -hmm. so great because I feel like female authors don't often get that that kind of biography, you know, like that, like yeah, something for people yeah. to come back to in generations and like, Oh, what did she get as her grade on her eighth grade paper? You know what I mean? Like that could be important someday, you know, I just. Well, uh, Plath is amazing. Um, uh, Heather Clark's new biography, Red Comet is, is a thousand pages. And someone would say, well, she put in everything. In fact, I'm she sure did she did. Not. Yeah. In fact, I know that she cut 300 wow. pages. It was even longer. And even if she had kept all, all 300 pages, I'm doing a book now called Sylvia Plath. Day oh, really? Day. Uh, yes. And there, I, when people read that book, they're going to see, and this is no knock in Heather Clark's book at all, but they're going to see how much she left wow. out. You know, there are things, for instance, her, you could teach a whole children's literature course just on the books that Plath read by the age of 12. Yeah. I mean, it's just astonishing. At the age of 12, she's, she's, you know, she's reading European history. She's reading about anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, the war is just ending. She's writing about the war. Uh, 
it's just she was so brilliant you know it's just astonishing well now you've done a biography are you going to oh yes i am i've uh I'm working now on um, the first few chapters of my new biography on Sonora Bab. Uh, yeah, that's right. So yes. tell us a little bit. about. So Sonora Bab is a, um, a writer who was born in Oklahoma um, when it was still a territory um, and grew up um, like living a very Western life uh, in a dugout, um, wasn't schooled until age 10. Um, in, you know, in formal school, um, but started writing at a very young age, really bright girl, um, and uh, came to LA in um, 1929 to start working for the Los Angeles Times um, a week before the stock market crashed. And so she um, lost her job, but really started establishing herself as a writer and um, got really into um, she, she started writing poetry first, then wrote short stories. And then um, she got a job. Um, she volunteered as part of the, um, the farm administration, um, uh, the, uh, the camps up and down uh, California. Um, she worked at the Arvin Sanitary Camp, which um, also called Weed Patch near Bakersville in California. And um, that's where she started writing her first novel, whose names are unknown. And she really connected with the, with the um, refugees who were there from the Dust Bowl. And um, her sister took these brilliant photographs and she was writing this novel and um, her, her boss, Tom Collins, invited this writer, uh, Steinbeck, uh, to come visit and um, interview yeah. her. And they went out to lunch at a nearby cafe. She shared all of her notes with him. Um, and uh, meanwhile, she got a, um, a book deal with Random House um, with Surf, and um, he flew her out. He, he set her up to fl fly her out that summer to New York um, to finish the novel, and um, was she had a book contract and was about to publish it. And right before she finished, he pulled her into his office and was like, I'm so sorry, we're not going to be able to publish your novel because um, this other novel by John Steinbeck is just killing it like it's it's um, you know it's a Pulitzer yeah. Prize winner it's a bestseller and we can't have two stories about the Dust Bowl which in you know that's yeah. hard to believe um and so uh she they were like oh but you know you can keep shopping it around and and um you know meanwhile no one would pick it up because of that um she continued to work on it mm. you know she had um she she was really uh good friends and eventually had an affair with Ralph Ellison and he edited it for her. Um, they, you know, her 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 book is beautiful. It really establishes, kind of like challenges the idea of a single story of the Dust Bowl. Um, so it's you know sure. it's more of what the Dust Bowl was like. And I'm personally invested in it because my family came over in the Dust Bowl. And my grandmother, you know, uh, she she was like always when I grew up. I was like, um, you know, oh, I read the Grapes of Wrath. It's so amazing, Grandma. And she's like. It's it's so not true as the worst story ever. And I'm like, what, Grandma? You can't say that about John Steinbeck. And she's like, he got it wrong. And I was like, yeah. oh no, he did it. And yeah. then I finally like now I'm like, oh my gosh, my grandma was completely right. Um, because he did he even put it in the wrong counties, you know, like there was no couple there. So it wasn't until much later in life that um you know, Sonora was basically on her deathbed and whose names are unknown was finally published by University of Oklahoma Press. And 
that's when like Ken Burns picked it up and, um, you know, put it as part of his Dust Bowl um, documentary. And, um, and so it's really, it's really time to tell her story, you know, like, I'm really, it is. Yeah. it's really exciting. Really, yeah. Really great. So, have you, have you read, <laughs> yeah. Have you read uh, William Sauter's new stuff? I am book? reading it right now. Yes. Aha. Uh -huh. Cause, cause she, yes. she figures in there. He, he tells a yeah, bit of he that does. story. Yeah. Uh, but 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 clearly there's there's more to be yeah, told for yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I hope to build on that. Yeah, there's a lot to be told, and it's been yeah. it's been really exciting. I'm a little bit I haven't been able to go to all the places that I need to go because collections are closed right now, um, as you've probably experienced. Um, <laughs> but oh, yeah. the things that I have acquired have been just fascinating. I mean, it's going to be an amazing biography. Well, you know what? You're establishing a reputation here. Two books, both of which could have been called Justice Two. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I have a I have a niche. <laughs> You've got a niche now. That's right. Absolutely. So is there anything else I should have asked you or you want to tell us? Uh, no, I just want to say that, you know, I do I do have a this niche, but I think it's a really important area of biography that seems to be opening up right now. That idea of um you know, there were a lot of stories, especially of stories like Charmian, who actually wrote parts of her husband's work, you know, and never got credit for it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stories like that out there. And I hope that biographers will continue to dig into the archives and find those stories. And, you know, it's not just women, it's, um, you know, all of the different perspectives that were kind of not given a voice um, during earlier eras. So I really hope that that trend continues and we continue to open up who gets to tell, you know, whose stories get to be told. Yeah, that, that's a great way to end here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'll be great. This it was wonderful to talk to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Cyrus. Bye. Bye-bye.